God, that is our prayer this morning. Not my will, but yours be done. Have your way with us, O God. May your word find root in our hearts. May the good seed be planted in fertile soil. And may it produce a harvest um, of plenty. May you have your way in our lives. And O God, as your Holy Spirit and as your word has your way in us, I pray, Lord, that we would have the joy of seeing a harvest of souls around us, the, the power of the gospel working through us as your people, that we, would be, that we would be the catalyst of that living water spilled out and poured out on the world around us to our families, to our loved ones, to our neighbors, to those in our workplaces, to those in our schools, wherever we find ourselves, oh God, that your working in us would be evidence of the power of the gospel and that that power would have its way not only in us but also in the world around us. And so Lord, this morning as we look into your word, we pray that our hearts would be receptive, not just to be hearers of the word, oh God, that we would be doers, submissive to what we see, actively working out the things that you have commanded and diligently striving to be transformed in every way by the renewing of our minds and captured by glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd encourage you, if you haven't already picked up one of these, uh, you'll probably want one of these. There's a lot we're going to be covering today, and um, it might be just be helpful to, to keep track of, uh, of where we are in the flow. I was thinking about uh, a way to try to make the message memorable and uh, to illustrate a little bit of what we're talking about uh, today. I, I thought about Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, as being a great correlation to what we're going to be sharing in our passage in 1 Peter. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So imagine, if you would, with me, that uh, this cup, this milk, represents your life. The chocolate is, uh, is the Holy Spirit, of course. right? Uh, Sweetening your life and through faith in Christ, there is uh, an indwelling of the Spirit in in your life. But as you know, and as you can see, the the chocolate has kind of settled in to the bottom here. It really hasn't had any effect in the milk itself. The, The milk has not been touched to the point of being changed by the chocolate that's there. It's not until, of course, there's a mixing and a blending and if we were to use biblical language, a filling of the Spirit that the Spirit is allowed to fill up and occupy your life and to to affect every part. That's really what we're after. We're after a a filling of the Spirit that, that touches and permeates every part of your life and so that the finished product is no longer just the milk on its own. It's, it's the milk that's been changed by the, the chocolatey goodness that's in there. <laughs> yes. 
And of course, a, a life that has been changed by the Spirit, when the life is bumped and nudged, and I won't do that, but you'll get the, the sense, when there is a shaking and a, and a mixing, especially when that, that life is filled up to the max with the Spirit, what will be the evidence of the flow, the spillage of that life will be the fruit of that Holy Spirit's influence, the fruit of the Spirit that, that spills out on the people around it. And it will have a happy effect because it will be a, a life that has been permeated by that fruit, uh, the love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of the fruits of the Spirit spilling out on on those around. That's the kind of life we're talking about in our passage today as we, we move deeper into this section of command. We've spent several weeks now walking through what does God accomplish for his people in terms of salvation. We, we, we've seen the, the banner written over our lives and, and the word of God written across the pages of these first several verses that, that God is exalted, that God is praised and blessed because salvation is a work of his. And now as we move our way into command, we, we, we need to be reminded of those truths and, and that's where Peter begins and that's where I'd like to begin by way of reminder this morning. As I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 17, I, I, wa- I want to begin this message with the same point that we started our message with last, last week. And that is, you must prioritize hope. Hope must be a priority in your life. Read this with me, beginning in verse 13. It says, Therefore... Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, and here is that, that first main verb, that first command that we come to after a whole section of exaltation. What is the first priority? Set your hope fully on grace. Grace that will be brought through, excuse me, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Uh, we're moving into a section of command. Uh, uh, the therefore that began this, this section that starts in verse 13 is uh, based upon the foundation of the truths that we have learned. Now there's something to do. Now there is a list of commands. Now there is some way for you to apply this to your lives. The first way, of course, is to set your hope on grace. Remember what God has accomplished for you in Jesus. Remember That salvation is a work of His. Anchor your hope in the finished work of Christ and direct your hopes to the future grace that will be brought to you because of what Christ has accomplished for you. We need to make sure that we get the order of these commands in the right place. Uh, Any of you who who have done any cooking or baking will know that you can have all the right ingredients 
You can have them measured out all the right way. But if you don't follow that recipe, those directions, in just the right order, you're not going to get the right product. Uh, like, if, if you cook all the ingredients independently and then try to mix them together, it, it's not going to work too well, right? And, and I've, I've come to learn that there are even some parts of the mixing process that, you know, you've got to make sure that the, the eggs sometimes are, are blended in, what's the proper word? You've got what's to, the, what's the word? Beaten, yes. You've got to beat those eggs the right way. Uh, there, there's a right way to, to do things, and if you don't, you're not going to get the right product. And so it's important, it's by design, that Peter has led with this command. Set your hope on grace, because he wants you to recognize that everything that is to follow is based upon, built upon the foundation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Christ leads to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, not the other way around. You have to get this in the right order. You have to understand that we add nothing to salvation. There is nothing more for us to do. The work of Christ, the, the, the finished work of Christ is complete. It is perfect. We add nothing to it. We contribute nothing by way of works or merit. It is done, accomplished, fulfilled in Jesus. And so that because of his work, then we can recognize what Peter is trying to get to in, in chapter 1, verse 2, when he says that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit. And that's where we go next. Justification precedes sanctification. The declaration of God for you in terms of righteousness, you are righteous. Not because you're righteous, but because he is righteous. You are righteous and declared righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that alone, you add nothing to the equation. But because of that finished work, because of that declaration of righteousness, now there is a correlating responsibility. Now there is a correlating truth. Now is there, there is a correlating work, a work of God. He began a work in you by, by bringing you to salvation. He's going to finish that work in you by leading you through the process of sanctification. That work of salvation will bear fruit because you have a new identity. You're, you're a new person. You have been brought into a new family. There is a new seed. There is a new life. And so this is going to be the key. This is going to be the key to unlock the door for the next several passages. This whole section, this is pivotal, pivotal for you to understand what's coming next and, and why it's all there. And so what I put for you in your notes, hopefully will be helpful, I want you to see that, that the truths up front, the beginning of this section in chapter 1, verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, kind of correlate with the truths that we find at the end of this section in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And I want to just see it for yourself. I've, I've bolded those words for you in your notes, and you're going to have to add the circles and the lines however you want to do that. I've already read chapter 1. Let me just read for you chapter 2, 11 and 12, so you can begin to see and make some connections. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. By the way, 
the only other time in this section where that word is used. To abstain from the passions of the flesh. Again, only time that word is used, beginning and end of this section. Which wage war against your soul. Keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see the correlation? Now, now what this does for us, at any time you see this in your Bible study, and sometimes it won't be as apparent, especially as you're working your way through, and, and by the way, it wasn't apparent to me until I finished the study guide. I'm like, huh, hey, look at that. There, there, there's a lot going on here that looks just like how we started. And so when you see these bookends, when you see the, the front and the end of a section that, that, are, that are saying virtually the same thing, you know that it's stressing the significance of the center. The outsides are the what. What should your life look like? The inside of that material are all of the things of how that is possible. How God has accomplished that for you. And why you are able to even do what you're commanded to do. So just briefly, things like in verses 18 to 21, we're going to look at beginning next week. He ransomed you by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be holy because of the finished work of Jesus in ransoming you and calling you to himself. It is based upon his work of ransoming and redeeming you. We find in verses 22 to chapter 2, verse 3, he made you alive through the word. And he uses some really intimate terms there. He uses the word seed. Okay? You plant things, you know a seed will bear certain fruit. And you know in the whole process of reproduction, seeds are kind of important in order to create a new person, a new life. Your life has been created by a seed of the the word of God. You are a new person because of this unique seed. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, he made you a temple and a priest. We're going to look at that uh, several weeks from now, but... But we don't have to orient our worship to Jerusalem. We don't have to orient our worship to the temple. We, we are being built up a spiritual house, a temple that, that has living stones based upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. It's a whole new way of worship that we get to enjoy. And God has accomplished this for you. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He made you his own people. It says his own special treasured possession. This is what God has done for you. He's accomplished this for you. And because of his working, you can be holy. So, you must live this way because you are holy and completely new. This is not about striving. It's not about achieving. It's not about disciplining yourself and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It is about surrendering and yielding and submitting and abiding to Jesus and allowing his Holy Spirit to have his way in your life. That's the, the foundation of where we're going. It kind of gives you some context of, of what, what is coming in the verses ahead. 
So let me call your attention back to to verse 14. Let's begin to, to fill out our understanding. I want you to recognize that hope leads to holiness. It begins with a priority of hope, but it will lead you to holiness. That is the destination. The, the, the command to set your hope on grace will naturally lead you to a holy life. We see that in verse 15 and 16 in particular. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the next main verb. The, the verbs in verse 14 begin to describe and to, to fill out our understanding of how that holiness happens in our life. Here's what I find really interesting. This word, be holy, this command that we find in this verse is not what you would expect. It actually is a passive imperative. Now, any of, the, any of you who are English majors will know that the active voice is the, indicates the individual who is fulfilling the action. A passive voice is the person who is receiving the action. Somehow, in this way, we as passive recipients are still responsible to allow holiness to fill up our life. How does that work? Well, we might find some help from Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which, by the way, is the only other place in the New Testament where we find this command not to be conformed to this world, okay? Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word, be transformed, surprise, surprise, is also a present passive imperative. What is going on here? Well, the passive imperative is a command directed to you in which you are not the active doer, but rather the cooperator and recipient of someone else's doing, and yet you still retain responsibility. When Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, we think about self-effort, don't we? We read that verse and we say, okay, I need to try harder. I've got to be more disciplined. I need to, I need to exert myself some more to make this happen. But I think this is what Peter has in mind. Follow this logic. As he who called you is holy. Be holy. For as it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Who is the holy one in those two scenarios? God is holy. And God is calling you to holiness. So think about this with me. So God alone is holy. And God's holy spirit is comes in and dwells your life. You are holy because of the work of the Spirit, not because of the work of you. Peter is not switching gears. Having come to chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, where he declares the mighty work of God in calling us to salvation, 
and saying, this is a finished work. He has done this for you. Salvation is kept for you in heaven because of God's work. And then he switches gears and says, well, salvation is all of God, but sanctification is all of you. No, that's not what's happening here. He wants you to understand that the sanctifying work is a work of God, just like the work of salvation is all of God. Holiness is a work of him, not a work of you. It's not like this song that some of us older ones may be familiar with. That God is watching us from a distance. That Bette Midler song. Is that right? Did I say her name correctly? Rather, that God has initiated a work. It's an intimate work of God in your life. And he doesn't just spin that work up and let it go, run its course. He, he is actively engaged in making sure that the finished work of sanctification is accomplished in your life. Paul reinforces this point in Galatians chapter 3. He, he wants the Galatians to understand this, and so he puts it in the clearest possible terms. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? What's the obvious answer? We receive the Spirit by faith, not by works. We understand that. We, we know that. And so Peter's, or Paul says, well, so let's carry this through. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you idiots? You guys, big dipsticks? What, I mean, come on here. You, you should know better. You recognize how this all started. You know what must carry it through. You, you cannot pick up a divine work and do a divine work for God. God must do a work for you. That's what salvation and sanctification is all about. So, how does Peter describe this life that we've been called to? Peter begins to help you understand the, the quality of this life, so that you know this life is not of you. This life is only of God. Notice how he describes it. He says, "But as he, call, he excuse me, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Let's look at the qualities of holiness. The first, of course, is absolute perfection. Absolute holiness, the standard of moral purity to the highest, the purest, and strongest and greatest standard that exists, the standard of holiness, the standard of God. There is no other greater standard than God Himself. God is calling us to Himself to emulate that kind of holiness. Not a holiness that we would understand from a human perspective, but it's the him who called you is holy, you also be holy kind of standard. It is the Trinitarian kind of holiness. It is the thrice holy God kind of holiness. The holy, holy, holy God of Isaiah chapter 6 kind of holiness that we're talking about. It is the kind of holiness that marks every part of your life. The, what you do in deed and what you do in word, in heart, in mind, every part of your life is permeated and saturated and dominated by holiness and purity. 
absolute perfection and purity as the standard. But also it's a comprehensive standard. The totality of life. He does not say, he says, in all your conduct. He does not say, be holy on Sundays. Or be holy in church. Or be holy in public. He says, be holy in all your conduct. It's comprehensive. You can't be perfect at church and then be however you want at home. You can't have a measure of holiness in public where everyone sees and, and yet in your private world there is, a, there is a discontinuity of life. No. It is the standard that applies wherever you are. It applies at home, at work, in the yard, driving to the store, interacting with people, taking a shower, washing the dishes, mending the fence, doing your homework, getting ready for bed, sitting down for a meal, working at your desk, taking a vacation, enjoying a game. It is the comprehensive kind of life that points to God. The comprehensive standard touches every part of life. There is nowhere that you can go that you cannot be holy because there is nowhere that you go that you don't also take the Holy Spirit if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is an absolute perfection. There is a comprehensive standard. There is the highest authority. And I want you to see this next. Peter reinforces the significance of this statement by repeating it, by saying it once and then offering it again to say, I mean business. Get your attention. Wake up here. I mean what I'm saying. Listen very carefully. And then, notice what he does in verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And I want you to recognize what is happening there is that Peter is raising the bar of authority to the highest degree by speaking for God himself. God has declared, be holy. It is his word, not a word of man. It is a word of God himself to you, be holy. No higher standard exists than the, than the authority and standard of the high, the, the high God who gives it to us. Quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. He has elevated this command to the highest degree. It would have been enough for Peter to have said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, be holy in all your conduct. But he wants you to recognize that God himself has called you to this. There are no exceptions for your life. I am holy. You shall be holy. No room for question. Peter has us completely boxed in with the absolute perfection, comprehensive standard, and highest authority. There is no room to budge. So, so what is going on here? And I want you to understand this. Holiness is not achieved because, of Christ, because a Christian tries harder. Holiness is not even achieved because you have some sort of divine power in your life. <clears throat> Excuse me. Holiness is achieved because you have a holy God who indwells your broken life. You are holy because God is holy. And he has come into your life to create a holy people. 
It is His work. Our holiness is not our own. It's God's. It is His fruit. The fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. You are holy because you have His mind, as we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 16, and Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. Because you have the Spirit of Christ in your life. Philippians 2, 5, it says, Having, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have His fruit, you have His mind, and you have His works, His righteousness. We could go all over the New Testament to look at this. Let me just call your attention to two. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is working his righteousness in you through the power of his Holy Spirit. So how is this life possible? It's possible because of a holy God. It's possible because of the Holy Spirit who indwells your life. And so how can you be transformed from one degree of glory to the other? Just like it wasn't your holiness, it's also not your glory. It is the glory of God shining through. It is the the work of the Spirit shining the glory of God through your life as the fruit of the Spirit is showing up in ever greater uh, clarity and splendor. So with all this in the background, we come to verse 14. And we finish our time with two questions. The first question is this, how do I live this holy life? How is this holy life possible? How do I begin to carry this out in in a really practical way? And he says this in verse 14. We, We go back to verse 14 because these verbs are dependent on the main verb found in verse 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You need to begin by recognizing the new identity that you have as being one of God's kids. We, as 21st century believers, really don't understand that very well. For many reasons. One, because so many of us come from such broken home situations. So our families are so messed up, we don't really even want to think about being a part of somebody else's family. It's so broken, we, we can't even imagine what a good family context would be like. But also because we have taken so much for granted in, in terms of our relationship with God. That, that we don't recognize the, the distance, the separation that, that existed before faith in Christ was available. For those who were Jews, they were born into this system of religion but they could only access God in a very limited way they could only access God as they went to Jerusalem or or went to a temple 
And their credentials were credentials that were based upon history. Oh, I'm a son of Jacob. I'm a son of Israel. Or I'm a son of Abraham. But now because of faith in Jesus Christ, they are a first generation son. They have immediate access to sonship, to the father. Not through some, some lineage that they enjoy, through, through a heritage that they have, but a direct connection, connection they have because of faith in Christ. This would have shattered their imagination. How could it be possible that God could accomplish such things? And then for the Gentiles, who once were outsiders, who once were strangers to the covenants of promise, who once were cut off from Christ, who had no hope in the world because of their alienation from from Israel and and all of the the ordinances of the law and, and standards of the commandments. They were cut off from all of that. But the Apostle Paul says, but you've been you've been brought near. You have been brought into relationship with God Himself. You have been made a son. You too are first generation sons through faith in Jesus Christ. Act in a way that's consistent with your new family. Through faith, you are part of the greatest family of all time. So act in a way that's consistent with that. So don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't don't give way to the former way of life. Don't allow those patterns of sin, those those uh, the, the baggage that you bring in to this relationship with God to, to begin to permeate and, and dominate your life. Have nothing to do with the old way of life, but direct your heart and, and orient your perspective to the to the prize that's set before you. To set your hope on the grace that God has given to you. Maybe we could think of it this way. Imagine you've invited a guest over to your house. And uh, this is a, a guest with some measure of dignity and honor. And you decide that in order to decorate your yard and decorate your house for this guest, that you're going to walk around to all of your neighbors and you're going to gather their their trash can, their rolling trash can, and you're going to begin to decorate your yard with the trash from their trash cans. Uh, you have done a really good job creating piles in your front yard, creating piles all throughout your house. And I wonder when that guest begins to make their way through the, the rubbish that they see, how welcome will that guest feel? In a similar way, we do the same kind of thing. By welcoming in worldly habits, by welcoming in worldly philosophies, by welcoming in and being distracted by all of the things of this world that have nothing to do with godliness. We clutter our lives with everything but God. We consume our attention with even with good things, but that have nothing to do with eternity. We are not fixing our eyes on future grace. We are not preparing ourselves for action. We are not being watchful. We are not being sober. We are not being vigilant. We are not allowing the work of the Spirit to fill our life and to have its way. When God says for us to do something and we feel the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, we know that what He says is important, but we say, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. We allow those corrupting influences to have their way. And when that happens... 
How welcome do you suppose the Holy Spirit will fill in your life? He, he's there. He, he is a guest that will not leave. But do you expect that the fruit of that Spirit, the, the, the work of God will permeate that kind of life? There's no wonder why you have no peace. Because the fruit of the Spirit who brings love and joy and peace is not present. There's no wonder why you have no joy in life because the Spirit who gives you the fruit of joy has been relegated to the corner of your life. It's dominated by the unwelcoming distractions that you consume your attention with. There is no wonder why you get impatient with your friends because the Spirit who gives you patience, love, joy, peace, patience and kindness and goodness. Those things are not present in your life because the Holy Spirit's fruit cannot show up. He is not welcome in your life. There's no wonder why your life lacks self-control because the Holy Spirit and the fruit of producing self-control in your life cannot show up. It's distracted. He's unwelcome. He's been pushed to the corner. You've not allowed the Holy Spirit to have his way. The Holy Spirit is not filling your life the way he was intended to fill it. And in that way, we, we make entrance into this command. We, we fulfill this command of being holy in a passive way by clearing space for the Spirit to have his way in our life. By not being conformed and allowing the Spirit to fill us the way he intends to fill us. And then verse 17 concludes this thought for us. What is the incentive what is the motivation for us to, to live this kind of life? He says in verse 17, If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This final command is found for us at the end of this verse, conduct yourselves with fear. The verse that immediately follows Leviticus 19.2, this is where the, the uh, um, be holy for I am holy, where the statement is drawn. The, the next statement, uh, Leviticus 19.3 says, each of you must respect his father and his mother. <laughs> no coincidence. This fatherly relationship based upon holiness leads to devotion, leads to respect, leads to honor, leads to, in this case, worship. And fear. Do you fear and worship, revere your Father? I love how Peter puts this. He puts this in form of a, of a hypothetical. He uses, he uses a key Greek word, if. And some of your translations may have since. That's, that's a, an okay translation, but the better translation is if. It's because Peter is trying to make a case here. He, he's creating a hypothetical situation so that you can compare your life to this statement to see if it's true. If you call on God this way, then holiness will show up in your life. So I wonder, do you call on him as father who calls on you? Notice verse 15, he who calls you is holy. So be holy. And here in, at the beginning of verse 17, if you call on him as father. So do you call on him who calls you? 
Is there a posture in your life of yielding and submitting and, and, and speaking and fellowshipping with your Father? Is, is there a pressing in, a longing to know and to, and to address Him in this way, to call on Him, to exercise the privilege that God has given to you in Christ, to call on Him through prayer? Second question is this, do you address Him as Father who has made you His child? Do you recognize the significance of the relationship that God has called you into? And do you treat him in a way that is, that is father-like in terms of, of, of worship and honor and respect and obedience? And finally, do you live in reverent fear? Is there a recognition of the of the hand of God in terms of exercising holy judgment against sin? Does it make you tremble to the, to, to the sense that you desire to obey? Not so much out of fear, but so much out of this, father, this desire as obedient children to conform ourselves into his image. Are you setting your hope on future grace? Have you by faith embraced Jesus Christ as Lord? And are you anticipating and looking forward to his soon return? I believe that when, when God will judge, he says he is the impartial judge. He judges based upon one criteria. And that criteria is not, are you holy? That criteria is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Because if you have the Holy Spirit, then that declaration of righteousness has happened. That transaction has taken place. That Jesus' righteousness has been placed on you and now you have received and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Spirit? Ephesians 1.13 says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you have the Spirit today? Are you part of God's family? Are you living in a way to make your Father smile? Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you have carried this through. That what you accomplished for us in salvation, you are working out for us and through us in sanctification. You haven't left us on our own. You haven't turned us loose and said, figure this out on your own. You have given us your Holy Spirit to indwell our lives and to make this happen. Oh God, may we, like we sang at the beginning of the service, may we yield our will to yours. May your will be accomplished in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week.